Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Tonight, though, we're excited to have award-winning and best-selling author Miles Corwin here for his new novel, uh, Kind of Blue. Um, kind of Blue has been honored as a finalist in the Best Book of 2010 Awards for Mystery and Suspense category um, from USA Book News. Um, Booklist has said that this fine first novel marks the arrival of a strong new voice in hard-boiled crime fiction. Uh, the Library Journal has said that Corwin's depiction of the life of a police detective is as real as it gets. And Robert Cray um, has uh, written that uh, every bit as moving, funny, complex, and exciting as the works of Michael Connolly and Joseph Wamba, Kind of Blue launches Corwin into the front rank of crime novelists working LA's meanest streets. And I also think that Kind of Blue is kind of like a great title for an LA cop book. It's, it's got the jazz thing, it's got the Los Angeles thing. I think that's really wonderful. Um, but first, I'd like to, what I'd like to do is introduce LAP dete LAPD detective uh, Marcella Wynn, and she'll be introducing Miles Corwin. Um, Marcella Wynn is a Los Angeles Police Detec Department detective. She is, was working as a homicide detective in South Central Los Angeles when Miles Corwin wrote about her in his first book, The Killing Season. So please help me welcome Marcella Wynn. Hi, good evening, everyone. I'm Marcella Wynn, detective with Los Angeles Police Department. I now have uh, 24 years on the job. Um, as the speaker previously said, I worked was working South Burr Homicide, had seven years on the job when I uh, met Miles Corwin. I was new, went to uh, South Burr Homicide, and my lieutenant informed me that I was going to be having a third partner who was a LA Times writer, which I did not like at all. <laughs> did not like that, didn't like Miles, didn't speak to Miles for about three weeks while he was in the car riding with us, because uh, LA PD did not have a good relations with LA Times, and I don't think it's gotten any better. And, uh, well, as we call the LA Communist Times. And Miles uh, was basically the third partner in the car with us. He went out on all our ride alongs, call out, uh, extraditions, and he got to see everything. And it's gotten to the point where I was like, okay, Miles, you can't, don't write that. And he's always had that pencil going. I couldn't understand his writing and see what he was writing. And I'm like, don't write that, don't write that. And as it would be with Miles, he had unprecedented access to LAPD, which was unheard of. And no one could understand. As a matter of fact, we were just lonely, my partner and I, because no one else would speak to us because Miles was with us. So they didn't know what to say. And finally, uh, after about a couple of weeks, and Miles kept saying, no, Marcel, I'm okay. I won't write that. I'll, I'll be this. And he kept trying to convince me, oh, you can t call this person. I go, well, they work LA Times, too. So we uh, finally, uh, I felt comfortable with him, opened up, and uh, he wrote the book. And uh, matter of fact, when he first read the book, I probably read it within 24 hours. I thought I was going to get fired. I didn't know what he was writing there. I'm like, oh, my God. He wrote, we said that. He put it. It was so truly a work a non-fiction uh, article I mean book but it was a uh, very good now as my uh, career's gone on 24 years with LAPD I'm uh, currently signed to uh, Central Division but I have two hats I'm sworn in as a US Marshal work FBI task force 
dealing with uh, hate crimes, human trafficking, uh, all civil rights violations in L.A. City, L.A. County, down to San Luis Obispo, up to San Diego, as well as the abortion clinics, um, crimes and things like that. So I'm doing that. Um, worked Robbie Homicide when Miles was there to write a homicide special, and as luck would have it, when Robert Blake killed his wife, although the jury said otherwise, but uh, Miles was there that night for that, had to testify, and uh, matter of fact, he tried to hide like we did from the subpoena. <laughs> Uh, when uh, he was following us with uh, South Pier Homicide, O.J. Simpson killed his wife. The jury said otherwise. And uh, Miles was there on that. So we were like, Miles, you can't write about this. And we go to the autopsy, and there and there, we're like, don't write that, don't do that. So this, then he became trustworthy. So matter of fact, when he came back, to LAPD, I think everyone would call me from the chief. One, well, how's this Miles? I said, Oh, Miles is good. You know, he wrote a good book. You know, he did LAPD uh, rights. So like, I think he'll still do the same thing. You know, so because when he came to Robbie Homicide, he he was met with uh, a little. Um, People were trepid about being around him, like, oh, who is this guy? Marcel Hoover was like, oh, go, no, he's good. They wouldn't talk to him with him, but then they opened up. And so Miles is a friend of the department, not necessarily the LA Times, but since he's not working with the LA Times, you really like him. <laughs> and uh, so now here I want to uh, introduce award winning book author, writer Miles Corwin. Well, thanks everybody for coming. I really appreciate that. Marcella, thanks so much. Um, that was a great introduction. Uh, they say uh, when you're a, a reporter, you should never, you should be, you can become friendly with the people you write about, but never become friends. And uh, I think that was sort of the truth when I was covering Marcella, but I think since then we truly have become friends and I've valued our friendship and we've stayed in touch all these years and, and uh, I'm really glad that you are my friend now, so thank you. Um, so thanks everybody for coming. Anybody who's written a book here and has looked at it a sea of empty chairs uh, knows how much you appreciate people coming to your book signing. Um, uh, everybody, I appreciate everybody coming. I uh, want to give a particular thanks to Barry Siegel, who's the uh, head of the uh, literary journalism program at UC Irvine and uh, who hired me and uh, who's given me kind of a safe uh, haven to be able to teach and be able to have the time to write and uh, who is a terrific writer. He's written a lot of terrific books about uh, legal issues and crime issues and always looks for the bigger story and he's kind of an inspiration to me. So thank you, Barry. Um, I also want to thank uh, my friend uh, who I met when I was a young reporter at the San Jose Mercury, Allison Engel, who uh, during the writing of this book I had some very rough patches and Allison was a great friend to me and really helped me out through it. So thank you, Allison. Um, Marcella talked about the skepticism with which I was uh, viewed by uh, the LAPD. The LAPD, most major police departments hate, uh, th hate uh, the local uh, newspaper reporters are covering them. It's particularly strong at the, at the LA, LAPD. They hate the LA Times reporters. I mean, that is a, and is a tremendous enmity. I remember the first day when I got, I got uh, clearance from the chief of police to spend a year with this elite downtown human, unit homicide special. And the captain of the unit and the lieutenant, Captain Tatro and Lieutenant Farrell, I met with them ahead of time. They gave me the permission. So my first day, I show up at 8 o'clock Monday morning. And they're the one who are going to introduce me and give me an entree. And neither of them are there. They were called out to uh, a big murder scene. So they're not there. So I show up. I'm there at 8 in the morning with my notebook. And I go in the room. And everybody is just people kind of giving me dirty looks or ignoring me, you know, at 8. Then it's 8.30, it's 9. Still nobody will talk to me. I didn't know who to talk to at 9.30, 10, 11. Finally, at 11.15, this is the, the 
the most important um, time in a homicide detective's day is when you have to decide where to go to lunch. And so people are discussing where to go to lunch, and uh, they pick the place, and then they, every, a couple of the detectives looked at the back of the room to Otis Marlowe, who was sort of the, um, he was kind of like the alpha male of the squad room, the oldest serving detective. And they said, should we invite this uh, uh, r reporter here for lunch with us? And he, he kind of stands up and looks at me and he says, um, I'd rather have lunch with Rodney King than have lunch with him. <laughs> and then he says, um, I'd rather eat dog shit in an alley than have lunch with him. And then he comes over to me and he says, that's right, I'm talking to you, bitch. And I'm going, f and I'm saying, this is my first day, I'm supposed to spend a year here. And then I'm just about ready to walk out and kind of give up on this project. And he leans over and he says, you know, I read that first book you wrote about Marcel, I thought it was okay, come to lunch. And once he said it was okay, that broke the ice and I was given kind of uh, uh, the honor entree and I was, uh, people, people kind of accepted me. But uh, I learned so much from spending that year with the detectives at Homicide Special and from spending six months with Marcella. I was with Marcella every day from the time she'd get the call out at two in the morning and they'd call me. I'd meet her at the Southeast Division Station on 108th and Broadway and off we'd go for the next 24 or 48 hours. And I saw everything that they saw, everything that they did. And I learned so much about it that I think I tried to put in this novel, this, the, the stuff that I really owe, owe, owe from, to Marcella and other detectives who, who gave me that kind of entree. I learned a lot about the criminal mind. There was a murder suspect in one case we followed um, and he was being polygraphed by Irv Young, Irv, Irvin Youngblood for two, three hours of rigorous polygraph about this because he was a suspect in a murder case. Then the end of the polygraph, the polygraph exam is covered with sweat. He starts unhooking the suspect and the suspect says, wait, wait, don't hook me up. Can you ask me one more question? And then the, the polygraph examiner says, well, what do you want me to ask you? He goes, well, can you ask me if I love my girlfriend because I'm not sure how I feel about her. And this way, if I say I don't love her and I test deceptive, then I'll know I really committed to her, you know, and I can go ahead. But um, so Irv Young says, well, where are you going? You don't have to worry about your girlfriend. Um, I learned from uh, following Marcel around uh, that, you know, it's kind of about true love and how there's really, truly someone for everyone. Um, the one case that Marcella was uh, on was um, uh, the guy's a murder suspect. He's waiting a uh, uh, hearing, uh, waiting a trial downtown, and a woman comes in from... Uh, from uh, the women's jail, Sybil Brand, and they happened to be in the holding pen around the same time. And so uh, a note was seized that Marcella particularly liked this note. She was kind of in, uh, romantic. And the, and the note of this, uh, the, other murder, the male murder suspect's writing a letter to his friend, and it's seized by the bailiff. And this was the note he wrote. I just met this bitch from Sybil Brand, light skin, healthy, and thicker than a motherfucker. <laughs> in for murder. I'm like, damn, yeah. I knew we had something in common. We switched, we switched 411. She's supposed to write this week. So I thought that was uh, Marcel's favorite uh, romantic t uh, incident at the time we spent together. Um, I learned uh, kind of homicide detective humor. There was a, a, a murder where a, uh, a, a man had um, uh, uh, killed his wife and young daughter and then uh, threw him in the back of a van and drove down to San Pedro Harbor and tied him up and dumped him under a one of the fishing boats and there was a big uh, meeting about this with charts and graphs they're trying to figure out how to prosecute the case and the first question a homicide detective asked in the back of the room he says well when he was you know picked when he was transporting them to the harbor was he able to take the carpool lane um, 
So I didn't, that kind of was, gave me the first kind of understanding about homicide detective humor. Um, I uh, learned their homicide detectives lingo. I remember every, when I, my first week at homicide special, the first thing, the, the next day, uh, Cat, uh, Lieutenant Clay Farrell stands up and pats his nine millimeter Beretta and, and, and calls out to Wally Tonelli, who's an ex-Marine, and, and uh, says, you ready to go kick some crip ass? And he, you know, makes sure his 45 is securely in his holster, and then they come back and they return 15 minutes later with the, um, all the lattes, the cafe lattes from Starbucks. So that was, that was I understood that. Um, uh, I started uh, writing about crime. This book is kind of the, the book I write, kind of, it's kind of the culmination of a lot of crime reporting. I started at the San Jose Mercury News when I was covering the uh, prison system for the San Jose Mercury News. And one of my first stories uh, was on uh, there were three uh, serial murders working in Santa Cruz all at the same time, and they called it the murder capital of, of, the, of, the, of the country. Um, and uh, my first assignment was to interview these serial killers 10 years later, after they had, um, uh, 10 years after they'd committed these crimes. And those are the days when the prison system was wide open. You can interview anybody as a reporter and get in. And, and the first person I interviewed was a guy named Herbert Mullen, who killed, I think, seven or eight female hikers in the Santa Cruz mountains. And, he, had he came out in the interview, he had charts and he graphs and he had a pointer and he had this whole thing figured out that by every time he killed a woman it would prevent a cataclysmic earthquake. And so I took notes, I came back and then two weeks later he wrote me a letter and asked me if the San Jose Mercury could support his parole and, and give him a job as a science writer. <laughs> and, uh, and then there was Edmund, Edmund Kemper who was the other, who was, um, uh, was a v very famous serial killer because the FBI studied him and used him to develop the first profile of serial killers. And he was at the Tascadero, and um, I wrote to him and asked him if I could see him. He says, "Yeah, if you bring $15 worth of uh, change, I'll talk to you." Because he was he was six foot nine, 350 pounds, and he wanted ice cream and candy, and so he kept eating ice cream and candy and talking to him talking to me and uh, he was pretty, he was really had an interesting background. He killed his grandparents when he was 15 and then after being released from the mental institution he had to see a state appointed uh, psychiatrist um, once a month and at the end of about three years of seeing them once a month they pro pronounced him completely rehabilitated in no further need of psychiatric help and at the time he had the heads of two, and a, two of his victims in, in his trunk. So I've never really uh, trusted psychiatrists uh, since then. Um, <laughs> when I went to the LA Times, I went to the other side. Instead of covering uh, the, cr the criminals, which I'd done at the Mercury, I'd started covering cops. And I found it a lot easier uh, dealing with serial killers. Um, <laughs> The cops, uh, they really hated, uh, uh, really, I mean, it was just, I was just so surprised. I remember my first day covering uh, cops with the LA Times. I had to call press relations. I talked to Lieutenant Duncan, you know, your old Lieutenant John Duncan, and I said, oh, I'm a reporter of the LA Times, and I like doing this story. I wouldn't want to get a little information. Because see, the fucking LA Times, that's the last person I would talk to. I'm not giving you anything. And he hung up on me. And this was who's in charge of public relations for the LAPD. <laughs> so I said, you know, where am I going to go from here? So, um... But then um, uh, I, start, I ended up, uh, this was quite a time for covering crime in LA. This was the period of the early 90s when it was kind of like the old Wild West. It was a kind of a perfect storm of, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of um, things that created this just terrible crime rate. You had the proliferation of automatic weapons, you had the explosion of gangs. 
You had cack, crack cocaine hitting the streets, and it just was just a very uh, uh, devastating time for crime in, in L.A. Um, there was, um, this is the time you had 2,000 murders in L.A. County every year. Um, I remember with the L.A. Times, we would do, the, we couldn't even write about the crimes. There were so many. We had the weekend roundup on Mondays, where sometimes there would be 45 murders on a single weekend. And nobody was really paying any attention to what was going on in the South End with this incredible murder rate. The uh, paper wasn't paying any attention to it because they just didn't have the re didn't have or were, were interested in putting the resources into covering it. People in the rest of the city didn't care about it, and even it seemed like the LAPD didn't care about it. The individual detectives did. Detectives like uh, Marcella Wynn were very dedicated, but the department didn't give them the resources. They hardly had enough detectives to to uh, cover these cases. You had murder in the West Side of the Valley. The detectives had weeks, if not months, to carefully investigate the murder. In the South End, detectives would have, have a case two, three, four days, boom, they get the next case and the next case and the next case. And so nobody was really paying attention. So I decided I wanted to pay attention to what was going on because it seemed like there was a kind of a quiet genocide going on and nobody was paying attention. So I wrote this. Uh, I asked uh, the lieutenant at South Bureau of Homicide, I said, Can, I'd like to write a book about this and write and cover what was happening. And everybody was amazed at the access I got, and they thought that I must be an incredibly persuasive individual. But I remember I said to him, I want to write a book. I'd like to spend some time with some detectives. He goes, okay. And I said, I think it's really important because he, as I said, I said it was okay. He just, he gave, because he felt that he, this was being ignored. Nobody was paying attention to what was happening in the South End. And he wanted, he figured if he had a writer writing something about it, maybe the department would give them more resources. Maybe people would see what was happening. And so uh, I got, a, I got, um, I got um, access, and I got complete access. I, um, whatever Marcel and her partner, Pete Rosanskis, did, you know, I got, uh, I, I was with them. Um, they were quite a great, they were quite an interesting team. You had Pete Rosanskis, who was really old school LAPD, cowboy boot wearing, to, cowboy boot wearing, tobacco chewing, kind of good old boy, you know, partner now with uh, Marcella, who was, you know, young, a detective trainee, and now was uh, investigating murders in the neighborhood where she was raised, South LA. Um, so they were really a great team, and um, I kind of got a feeling for who they were before I met them because of just the signs on their desk. Um, Raz, the sign on his desk, was, um, Jesus loves you, but everyone else thinks you're an asshole. <laughs> and um, I really like that sign so much he gave it to me, and I have it at home. And then Marcella's sign on her desk, this is what I th uh, my introduction to Marcella was, I have PMS and a 9mm handgun with 16 rounds. Any questions? <laughs> um, so you had these two really great characters, and they were really, a, I mean, I, I felt I was kind of cheating uh, getting paid for this book, because all I had to do was write down the dialogue between the two of them and put it on the page, and it was entertaining. Um, uh, this was, uh, to give you an idea of how, so you have these two interesting characters. That would seem interesting enough to me to make a Hollywood buddy movie, but apparently Hollywood didn't think so, and so it was when there was a talk of optioning it, um, some, one, uh, production company decided they needed a third character, and the third character would be the reporter who followed along with them. And so, uh, to give you an idea, again, the accuracy of Hollywood, the idea of their casting choice for the, for the reporter was kind of a close fit for me. It was going to be Will Smith. <laughs> so, um, um, so as I said, I went, did everything Marcella did and Raz did, and I remember our first autopsy. I went with, with uh, Marcella, and uh, these autopsies are, they're pretty brutal. You, you know, they got the striker saw zipping the top of the head off and the, you know, crunching the, the, the crunching the sternum and opening up the ribs like a, like a car hood with all the organs exposed. And I think Marcella was kind of looking at me and kind of thinking that maybe I was going to 
passed out. And she was kind of impressed that I you know, was taking notes and it didn't seem to phase me. But I think I told Marcella after, uh, my trick was, because I have a very queasy stomach, I went into the autopsy without my glasses on. <laughs> so everything was kind of fuzzy and hazy. And then when something, they'd do something and Marcella wasn't looking, I'd kind of go like that real quick and write it down. So that was my, how, I survived, uh, how I survived my autopsy. Um, the, uh, I was with uh, Pete Rosanskis one night, Marcella's partner, when a kid was murdered um, down at uh, like a 70th and Central. And uh, I, I remember standing with Pete at the, under the uh, uh, street lights and he pulls out of the back pocket of this kid an exam uh, on the French Revolution. The kid got an A and I remember standing there and re Pete's reading and I'm reading it and you could tell the kid was a smart kid and a good writer. And uh, I remember Pete says, well, this isn't your typical dipshit, which is, and it turned out he was a smart kid and a gifted program, and that kind of gave me the idea to, I'd been spending so much time writing about the minority of kids in South LA who are causing the majority of problems, I should write about the majority of kids who are oh, good kids and trying to just get by. And so I wrote a book about, I spent a year at a high school in South Central LA, and it was called The Killing Season. Um, I f after finishing the epoch, I returned to my first love, uh, homicide, and spent the year uh, with homicide, homicide special. Um, I remember one of the first cases I, fought, I was with him on was that case where um, the, the man killed his mother and, mother and uh, killed his wife and daughter and shoved him under a boat in the, har in the harbor. And I remember I was standing on the harbor boat and the detectives are all talking about the case and discussing it. I have an opening and I'm writing furiously. And on that night on the evening news, they said at least, you know, they showed the detectives just sitting there with hands in their pocket talking. And then they focused on me and they said at least one detective is hard at work trying to solve this horrendous crime. <laughs> and everybody started calling me Detective Corwin after that. Um, <laughs> At, when I was researching that book, Homicide Special, I had two notebooks with me at all times, two steno pads. Uh, one pad, I r was taking notes for the book, and I had another pad that I was writing uh, ideas for a novel, because I knew I was going to write a, um, a crime novel after that. And, I, and he, all the things that detectives would say that would get, me either, get them either divorced or fired, I saved um, for this book to put it under fictional characters. But I, so I had a, just a wealth of, I just had a wealth of material to, I, I had how cops talked and how they thought and funny things that happened, but I didn't have a character, and I really didn't know what, who my main character would be. And then I was talking to uh, James Elroy, one of the all-time great crime writers. He was down at, uh, hom at the Homicide Special Squadron time doing a story for GQ magazine. And I remember he was, he was telling me that when he was younger, he'd been arrested a bunch of times. And one time he was arrested for burglary, and a cop ended up coming into this apartment he was burglarizing and hooked him up and took him to the squad car. And Elroy said he noticed the cop had a, his name tag, and his name tag was Moskowitz. And Elroy said the only thing he could think of was, what's a Jew doing as a street cop? And I thought, you know, if that question kind of intrigued Elroy, maybe that would be a good character for me. And then I met a young uh, Jewish cop uh, through the research uh, on one of the cases, and um, he was telling me that uh, when he, uh, at his academy graduation, all the families were, you know, so proud and so happy and snapping pictures, and he said his family was just sitting there glum, surly, angry, you know, what do you have to be a cop for? You know, why can't, be, why can't you be an accountant like your brother, and you're going to get injured, and what are you doing? And, you know, I thought that was all just would make great fodder for, for a book. I thought that was very funny. In fact, he was... Um, uh, 
was, uh, he was a Russian speaker, he, and uh, he grew up in the Ukraine, and he had to interview uh, some Russian mafia uh, suspect, murder suspect, and the guy was, he was a younger guy, but he was like six, seven, his enormous suspect, and Krumer's interviewing him, and then he, uh, the and then he says to him, uh, he turns out the, uh, this suspect, this Russian mafia suspect was Jewish too, so the detective says to him, let me ask something, because he wasn't giving the cops anything, he says, um, did your mother tell you not to say anything before you came over here? The guy kind of looks kind of, she goes, well, yeah, she did. And then he explained later, he said, only a Jewish cop would ask a Jewish suspect that kind of question. <laughs> so I thought that all that was very funny and, I, and, and would be good material. So I made my character a Jewish detective. And I, since then, I've met a bunch of uh, Jewish cops, uh, not that many, but, uh, and they have some pretty entertaining, um, entertaining uh, uh, anecdotes. I set the book in downtown LA. I have my character live in a loft in downtown. Um, my grandfather owned a, the Roslyn Hotel and uh, my family lived there. I spent the first years of my life at the Roslyn um, and so that uh, is still there, um, still still a dive. Um, but um, uh, I have feel a real fondness for downtown LA. In fact, my first day um, when I got hired to the LA Times, my first day working for the Times in uh, it uh, second of spring after my f when I finished my uh, day at the LA Times, the first thing I did is walk down the Roslyn, and there was a guy behind the bulletproof plexiglass. Uh, you know, a counter and uh, the crackheads in the lobby and people snoozing on the sofas, threadbare sofas. And I said to the guy behind the bulletproof glass, who who who's kind of the clerk, I said, you know, I, my grandfather owned this hotel. I lived here as a kid, and I haven't been back since then. And I just got started at the Times. I'm downtown again. I was getting kind of choked up. I said, would you mind if I kind of looked around? And he says, you have a room key? I said, no. You can get the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, So I, um, I really learned a lot about, you know, one thing about TV shows, you always see the detectives in NYPD Blue or The Shield, they're always in the room with these box with these suspects and beating the crap out of them to get them to confess. But I, one thing I learned from Marcella was, you know, Marcella was just very charming. She never threatened uh, the people she interviewed. She just had a great rapport and she had a capacity to get people to kind of open up to her and to trust her. And I remember one of the cases I went back to with uh, Marcel and, and uh, Pete Rosanski's back to Miami to pick up a double murder suspect, Larry Charles Gary. And after Marcel arrests him and brings him back um, uh, to LA, right before he gets thrown into his holding cell, he tells Marcella that um, um, uh, when he gets out of this, he was going to uh, fly her back to Miami and make her his special uh, dish of enchiladas and white chocolate cake. So that shows you how charming Marcel is after arresting this, bringing this guy back from Miami and hooking him up on the plane and throwing him in jail. He, he, this is how he how he's going to deal with Marcel. So I was very impressed with that, with Marcel's charm. If you can do that, you do a, to a double murder, so you've got a lot of charm. So that, um, all that kind of led into writing this novel, Kind of Blue. So if anybody has any questions, I'll be glad to answer them. Miles? Sarah? What does the LAPD or maybe Marcella think of Dick Wolf's from the Los Angeles? Marcella, you were just talking about Law and Order. Law he, Law you Order. were just talking about that. Uh, I, I think it's great. I think it's one of the uh, better uh, hot television shows out there. more realistic. Uh, Okay. So Miles, that you 
written three, you wrote, you wrote three great nonfiction narrative books, and then you went, went to not on the fictions. Difference in writing those books, um, how, how is it different writing a novel about the about things that you have been written, writing true stories about? I think when you're writing the, the true story, especially if you're doing immersion, you really have a plot and a narrative arc already built in. When you finish that year, the, the, you kind of know where the book is going to begin, where the middle is, and where it's going to end. And it's you just have to kind of fill in a lot of the, lot of the rest of it. I mean, I think the toughest part about the novel is imposing that one big arc um, and creating that one. And so, it's, so the reader stays interested e each step of the way. And uh, when I f wrote the book, I, I wrote it in about four or five months. I thought, well, this isn't so hard. I don't know what everybody's talking about. But then uh, eight rewrites later, I realized um, <laughs> it was a lot harder than I figured. And um, I think that was the toughest part, just imposing that one. Because there wasn't, if there was one, gr uh, all the uh, research I did with Marcella and with Homicide Special as a crime reporter, there wasn't one particular crime that I was able to use to, you know, I was just, I had to take fragments from a lot of different ones and put it together. So I think that was the hardest thing, creating an overarching plot. What did the Jewish, the other Jewish detectives and policemen think about you making, I think you called it Juno, Juar, <laughs> making that as a, as a genre? But that's too much. They had, you already you have, you know, there's this southern writers that call it, you know, Dixie Noir, and then there's the Swedish Noir, and all this, and you have all the different kind of uh, Noir. My wife, after reading the book, she said, well, this is Jewar, you know? So, um, um, you know, I never told them that I was actually doing that. You know, I, I, I mean, I'd never, I, since I finished it, I mean, I was just sort of, was kind of germinating at the time, at the time, and it never, so, but one of these days, I'd like to see what they, what they think of it. Bruce? Miles, I'm the only writer in LA who has no interest in writing screenplays or TV. I just, it's just not my, you know, it's not my, um, you know, medium, I think. You know, I think it's just, it's so compressed. You know, everything is so compressed and formulaic, the freedom is really limited, I think. And I just don't think I could do both. Some people can do both, and I just have a limited amount of time and energy. So I, I and I really like, to me, what I've always liked, I mean, they say write, like, you write what you like to read. I've, you know, I really like the writing. I like the, the narrative form and the beautiful language of the writers I like, and I think you just, you know, screenplays and TV is all dialogue, and I think that that's, what, I think the, it cuts out the part that I like so much about. Has there, well, let, me, let me take it another step further the other way. Has there been any talk of any options on your books for a movie? Well, like every other writer in LA, I've had the, me the meetings, you know, uh, uh, that, and so we'll, you know, you, you know, I've been in development hell, as they call it, many times, so, you know, we'll, uh, and I've even got the, um, I even got the call, uh, the, um, you know, I loved your book, I can't wait to read it. <laughs> so, which is sort of, to me, the Hollywood, uh, <laughs> the perfect Hollywood, perfect Hollywood reaction. <laughs> Brent? When you were fictionalizing things that you had read, was it a struggle to know like how much to fictionalize them, how much to stay true to what you'd already seen? Yeah, I mean, I tried to make it, you know, I didn't want to take things word for word, you know, so I had to kind of make a blend of things I thought there were, and take the kernel of it and then sort of elaborate. The one thing I did steal was, I thought this was always very funny, was there was a legendary um, uh, detective, uh, D3, detective supervisor in the Hollywood division, and a lot of guys from RHD came from Hollywood, and what he would, whenever he would call somebody at two or three in the morning to wake him up to tell him for a call out, they'd answer the phone, and he'd always say the same thing, he'd always say, when they'd answer the phone, are you naked? 
You know? <laughs> and I just thought that was very funny. You know, so I actually stole that and used that. And that was the one thing I did rip off. That was, uh, that was uh, Russ Custer, who was a legendary, uh, legendary uh, character. And but everything else, I kind of took little pits and pieces, things that I thought, you know. Um, the thing that I think I had the hardest time capturing was I think the Thomas Hyde detectives were some of the funniest people I've ever made, met. They have great senses of humor. And, um, you know, they just, I think, because the ones that don't have a great sense of humor don't last in homicide, they burn out because it's just too intense. And I had a hard time trying to write a book that was serious and that people would get invested in emotionally and then sprinkling it with the humor. And I think that was the hardest thing I had to do is be able uh, to be able to capture that humor. I don't think I did as good a job job as, as um, uh, I should have because the, I, there are so many funny guys I met and so many humorous things I saw. Barry? I think the fiction's harder. I mean, I just think, for me it is, just because I, I mean, I feel like, I mean, I've been trained as a nonfiction writer. I've been trained to be a reporter. I was a reporter so many years. I've been, that's my training, that's my orientation, and so this was something new. It was a brand new job for me, and so it was harder for me because I didn't really have the background in it. And I think it's harder because in, in nonfiction, you kind of, uh, you have to you have to get to good write a good nonfiction book. You got to be lucky to a certain extent. You need really good material, and I think I have been lucky. But um, you don't have any excuses in in fiction. You really it's just all you, and you've got to. And I think that you know, uh, you know, you you have you, got no you've got no, uh, no nothing nothing to blame if it doesn't work out. Nobody to blame. Anybody else? All right, well, I'll be glad to sign books. And to those of you who are in a hurry, thank you. Those of you in a hurry and don't want to wait, you could just buy a book and mosey on out if you don't feel like waiting in the massive line for, uh, for my signing. Where do, you, where do you want me to sign them? Let's give Miles another hand. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.